This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Miss Evelyn Genta. Uh, she is the widow of the late watch designer Gerald Denta. Um, Evelyn, uh, you've been someone who I've seen at, at many events, and I've wanted to welcome you to the show. Finally, welcome to Superlative. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to speak to you. Your husband's name gained so much popularity after his death, which is sort of an interesting thing for you. He unfortunately passed in, I think, 2011 was when it was. Um, yes. And over the last several years, I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that it's sort of like he's back because you're hearing his name so often. I'm just curious emotionally, what's that been like to hear his name more maybe now than in the past? In a way, it makes me happy, very happy, but um, also a bit sad. I suppose it is the fate of artists. Uh, Artists are very often recognized once they're gone. On there, uh, except you know people like Picasso or whatever who had the chance to enjoy it while they were alive, but now everybody is realizing the huge influence my husband had on the watch industry. And I guess it's interesting to refer to him as an artist. He was. Did 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 he call himself an artist? He certainly did. Gerald never felt watchmaking was. Um, an industrial adventure. He was before and everything else an artist. Gerald painted throughout. He painted when he was a child. He painted while he had he was Jargenta and had the factories. And he painted after his he he didn't have the business anymore. And so his idea was, I'm doing watchmaking as applied art rather than watchmaking. And this was a very fortunate position for many people who got to take a love of art and, as you said, apply it to some trade, whether it's industrial design or advertising or something. But the the 20th century especially had many examples of these very lucky individuals who got to be artists in a trade, right? I think so. I think the 20th century gave these people a chance to make a living while still being true to the fact that they were artists, you see. In the watch world, which is what we're discussing, there were no designer of watches when he started. A watch was round, square, rectangular. You then took a bracelet that would work with it, and that was it. <laughs> Today, uh, after Gerald, Gerald invented, now you have designers everywhere for everything. But in those days, you didn't. And uh, Gerald invented that world. What were some of the worlds that he grew up within? I mean, obviously the famous, you know, era of industrial design, the Bauhaus, the Eames and all that. This was everything. What 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 do you remember as being some of his major influences? I think his major influences were not the Bauhaus or whatever. His influence from young was Picasso. Okay. Gerald was totally totally obsessed with Picasso. There was not one show of Picasso we didn't go to. There wasn't one uh, uh, book on Picasso. Of course, we couldn't own Picassos, but there was not one book of Picasso he didn't. And he thought that Picasso was so creative, had no boundaries, and could create plates, but could create paintings, but could create sculpture. And I think that the, the major influence on Gerald was 
definitely Picasso. And one day in Singapore, we where we had a very large following for watches, we walked down Orchard Road and the people distributing our watches had put a big poster, the Picasso of timepieces. And I think that was the happiest moment for Gerald. How nice. I mean, yeah. Picasso is so easy to love. I mean, not everyone is familiar with what he really did. They might know the name, but one of the things that strikes me about Picasso is he would, you know, get obsessed with a certain style, go crazy with it, drop it, and then try something completely different. And you have all these, I don't know what they call them, the eras or the phases or whatever they have with him. And and look at Gerald, how versatile he was. Yeah, He yeah. could make you a very, very elaborate um, diamond watch and suddenly think, oh, that's a nice diamond watch. I'm going to design it a bit differently, whatever. And that night, it produces steel sports watch. Now, when he got into watch design, you said that this thing wasn't a job. There wasn't watch designer. But how did he exactly make a living? What did he sell himself as? Well, because he was hired by different companies. He was. Well, First of all, you have to understand that Gerald comes from a very, very, very poor background. So he had to start work when he was 14 years old, doing odd jobs, you know, uh, being a cinema usherer, bringing parcels to places, whatever. Then he thought, I need to learn a trade. So he lived in Geneva and he thought, I will learn jewelry making. So Gerald could actually manufacture a ring from start, you know, he, he had the craft. Right, right. And so he was hired by a bracelet factory to make bracelets. And when he was producing, after the fifth bracelet, which was identical to the other four one he produced, he, he decided to do it a bit differently. And of course, his boss fired him. Um, and so he in a a very theatrical way which is typical of my husband he threw his tools in the road and said he'd never have another boss oh my god yeah 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 but but he needed a job so he was doing still odd jobs here and there and he started designing and he wasn't hired straight away it was him taking his car and going to everywhere, Chaux de Fonds, Bienne, Cotofe, uh, you name, you know, all the places where you were making watches and offering designs that at the beginning were sold 10 francs. Interesting. So it was like almost selling, you know, your, your paintings uh, on the boardwalk at a budget price at, to, just to get in. Very much so. And this is why I think we have no ideas how many judges that designs are in Piaget, in Corum, you name them, but they don't know and we don't know, you see. So his idea was, I, I, I have this imagination for something beautiful. I'm going to draw it because I have the skills to do that. And I'm going to just go to the places that build these things and hope that eventually they'll buy my design. He was, you know, literally traveling door to door to sell Absolutely. Himself. And he said he would come back when he had enough money to live. And that's how it started. And then little by little, of course, some companies thought, oh, what this guy is doing is interesting. So they started offering him positions. So it was Universal, it was Omega, it was Le Marpiguet, he was doing watches for Cartier. But that took time. It it wasn't instantly hard. It was a hard, hard curve. When did you enter Gerald's life? 
I entered Gerald's life in 1980, so the factory was already beginning. Before that, it had a small workshop. And when I, I married Gerald, the factory was producing half of what we call, um, you, you know, under other people's names and beginning to, to produce Gergenta. So we, we had a great adventure. It was great. So help explain the context business-wise because people, many people that know his name know him for some of these designs he did in the early 70s, uh, you know, the Royal Oak, the Nautilus, um, and there, there's, there's others. Um, I think it's less clear what his next steps were up until having a name that was his own, up until not having that and doing other things. You know, so fill in some of the, yeah. Uh, once he had... Uh, design what you say, the Royal Oak, the Nautilus, the IWC, and many, many more. Um, he went to Japan. Okay. He got a contract with Seiko. Interesting. And had a lot of respect from Mr. Hattori himself and got on very, very well with Mr. Hattori. He always loved Japan. He loved their attention to detail, their attention to quality. Right, right. And so... He had made a small collection with no name on of six watches. He hadn't put his name on them, but they were there. And Mr. Hattori very kindly offered that in a shop called Wako, which is their luxury, I don't know if it still exists, but if yeah, there's yeah, it does, luxury, it does. Sh- luxury shop for Seiko, That's the best. he would show the six watches, which was really exciting, you know? Yeah. And a brand, which I will not name, so he put a poster outside saying, by the man who designed Tark, 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 Tark. And one of these brands phoned up Mr. Atori and said, we forbid you to say <laughs> that. <laughs> so Mr. Hattori said to my husband, you know, this is disgusting. You need to put your own name on the watch. And when we came back to the factory, he created a Giargenta logo. And that was the first six Giargenta watches. So let's let's dive into this a little bit. He had an opportunity to have a bit of an exhibition yeah. of some of the watches he did. And I mean, it's six. It's not some. It's a six. It was six pieces. He donned them out of you know enjoying them. The idea was maybe he would you know he was, we would have then shown them to I don't know Van Cleef, Cartier, whatever, and put their name on it. But he wanted to show them. And there was this threat. And he had from this a Swiss experience brand. from yeah. a Swiss brand. He's, you know, obviously been working, you know, these are his clients and things like that. But I think that there's a very strong emotional thing, right? Because to go ahead and make your own brand, it's a rebellion move. The natural thing is to try to work with others, be like, you know, we're part of a team and, and you're the manufacturer, I'm the designer. There's a there's sort of an anger and rebellion that must happen first before you say, you know what, screw <laughs> you guys, I'm going to do it myself. Well, if you had known Gerard, you would have known that this was a screw you guys was exactly his, his, the way he would think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah, he, he didn't, ha- and he thought, I don't have to do the DNA of the brand anymore, of the other brands, you know, which you have to respect when you're designing for them. And I'm going to be my own man. But he said it was the biggest emotion for him to suddenly put his name on on a watch, his own name. He, 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 it took him quite, you know, um, aback, saying, oh my God, do I dare do that? 
Was it scary having this much freedom? Because sometimes designers tell me that when they have to work within the confines of a brand's DNA and history, it's actually kind of nice because it's like it's limiting and they know the parameters they can work within. But when you do whatever you want, you can have, uh, you know, the, the, the artist equivalent of writer's block. No, it wasn't at all. I would tell you what was scary, the financial part. Of course. I mean, for us, that was it. Because, you know, the more you grow, the less happy your former clients are with you. And they will try everything. Not all of them. Some were very, very supportive. But they will try everything to stop you. And that's and that's what you experience? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What, but, you know, it's funny because on the outside, there's this discussion of the Swiss watch industry. There's this understanding that, we all have to maintain this this sense of value so the rest of the world has the you know the, the the sense of pride and the prestige that we want them to have but internally there's a lot of fighting is that fighting merited is is the market that small or is there a big enough pie and i think that you know there's this discussion all the time from the outside it seems like the pie is big enough that these companies should be more companions and they should show more camaraderie but as as we're discussing it can be quite bitter when, when, is, when threats exist. It is quite exist. bitter, but show me uh, one field where the, it is not bitter, and I will be very interested to know. And remember, uh. we are we were still at, at the, we wanted the very, very top. So the air is more rarefied up there, isn't it? Yes, and, and you, you always see this threat. And I think there's this idea that, you know, the best watch brands sell to a small demographic of people. The idea isn't to be the luxury object for everyone, but to fill a new niche. And we love we love watches for it, yet, you know, I guess there is this natural sense of like, well, you're maybe taking our customers. What, what was it like into the 1990s? Because the 1990s is when we really had this new luxurification of timepieces. You know, now they are no longer Well, it tools. was worse because yeah. they understood that Gerard had an immense creativity, that he could go from, a, as we said, a steel watch, a perpetual calendar. He had the complete me mechanical best power to do military Peters, uh, to do grand sonneries. So he also had the total authenticity of watchmaking and movement. So he had it all. He really had it all. So they got threatened and the the... The climax of that was the Mickey watches, where we, Gerald, did Mickey uh, watches, but as you know, in a Gerald way that is very sophisticated and very beautiful. And he was told to remove them from Watches and Wonders. And by that who? to me, uh, so by two, by, so uh, I will tell you the story because it was in the papers. So we, Gerald arrived, everybody had windows, everybody from the watch world, had windows, and he took his white gloves because he never touched his watches without white gloves and put his Mickey in the window. And three brands came straight to him saying, this is a disgrace, uh, this is not Swiss watchmaking, you do not respect the reputation. And Gerald being Gerald, he turned around and said, look, Walt Disney gave more happiness to the world than you all lot ever will. So that was you know, the beginning of a little argument. And then the argument rose and rose. And then the Swiss TV came to film all these arguments, which was even worse. And then out of support, Cartier and Abel also left. So we left and they left. And we never went to back to this exhibition. But you see, 
But the me, the judge and the Mickey watch it were a huge success. Of course, of course. And today, everyone who even learns about it for the first time probably should realize that this this thinker was way ahead of his time because this intersection between Swiss fine watchmaking and pop culture is now at a, 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 this incredible boil. It's like we can't seem to get enough of it. That is what I mean. This is why we have, Jean was always at least 10, 15 years ahead. Uh, by the time people make uh, characters on watches, I mean, I have in my safe a watch that Gerald made years and years ago, which is um, Superman. And okay. that was, and, and he, I have the prototype, and he made that 20 years ago. Now, what was it like with Disney? Because obviously this was an officially uh, licensed watch, as I understand. And yeah. I don't know that they had ever done a project like that. Do you remember anything about what it was like yes. to convince them? Uh, oh, I'll tell you the, again. You see, with us, it's all encounters, meeting people. This is what's important about the Gergenta brand. It's a human brand. It's, it's, you know, so uh, Eisner was the CEO of Disney's in those days, was right. a great Genta collector. And he had his mom, who apparently loved Bambi. And he asked Gerald, he said, Gerald, would you make for my mom a Bambi watch? Oh, wow. And Gerald designed an amazing Bambi watch, very poetic, where Bambi watches a little, the, the hours of the, the, the hand of the minutes going around watching a little butterfly. So Bambi looks at this butterfly. It's very pretty. And Mr. Aina was thrilled with it. And Gerard said, look, may I give it to you? And he said, no. I said, yeah, yeah, may I give it to you? But my dream is to make Mickey watches. Would you give me a license? It's not going to be a huge license. We're not going to produce, you know, huge numbers. That's not us. But I will send you what I want to do. And if you approve, will you give me a license? And he did. That's the way to do it, right? <laughs> I That's mean, the way to do it. And it was very good. And the lawyers came and checked the numbers. Of course, they were small numbers, but they were so exquisite. There was even a miniature Peter Mickey Mouse yeah. made in um, white gold and yellow gold. And these were works of art. There's nothing wrong with works of art being either Mickey or being something else. I mean, I think we had the beginning of this argument in the sort of Andy Warhol era where there's this argument about, you know, it, it doesn't remind us of the art we grew up with, so we're not really sure what it is. And you always have this antagonism towards a new type of expression, don't you? You do, you do. And some people understood it. We had a client who was an art fanatic. And he said, look, Mr. Genta, I'd like you to make 10 watches on my 10, 10 favorite paintings that he didn't own. You know, these are museum pieces. And he gave him the, the Monet, the Manet, the Picasso, whatever. And Gerard said, this is going to take a long time because I have to respect the painting. Therefore, for the Picasso one, he used uh, 24 karat gold as the dial to be able to uh, engrave it. For some others, it was enamel and everything else. And so the gentleman said, I can't have the painting. I can look at my watches and have them on my wrist. But it was done very respectfully. Art is art. It seems that for a large part of this career, um, your husband enjoyed a bunch of patrons. And what a yes. fortunate thing for any artist to have these fans 
who are willing to commission you to make beautiful objects for them. I, I mean, it sounds like he he reached this very I'm rarefied so state. I'm so glad you understand it because you see, the world had changed. And I try to tell, when people said, well, yes, but you had clients in the Middle East or in the Far East, I said, because the world has changed. But these patrons were the same patrons that uh, in the old days people were for Leonardo da Vinci, yes. except it was in a different world. But these people were very, very educated. And without them, he wouldn't have been able to produce these works of art, would he? So I hope that wherever the world goes to, patrons are still patrons and the and artists still have the chance of having these people. Otherwise, it would be very reductive. Well, you know, you can make an argument that part of this has to do with embracing open-mindedness, meaning if we embraced these novel objects that creators made, that we'd be more open to it. And I think that, in, especially in the watch space, there's a sort of dehabilitating conservatism, which can um, show its ugly head at times where new things are just by default hated for the first few years. It's just, it's like every, yes. single, every single thing that's new, it's hated. Eventually people are going to recognize, oh, it's not so bad. But, but at the same time, you are now in this interesting position where you have to, you are the, the uh, sort of a guardian of the legacy of his body of work, which means that you also have to say, yes, make new things, which is what he would have said, but also appreciate the body of work. And now part of your life, and again, I don't know exactly how you describe it, but you are a, a, an ambassador to to his legacy. Yes, yes, I have, because we worked together all the time. We would go to the factory together at seven o'clock in the morning. We would see the clients together. We would travel together. So even though I am not at all, I don't have any genius, I'm not a creator, I know what he would have thought very well. And so what so were you good at? You said I, was he's, good at yeah. I was good at <laughs> I, I was good at running the show, running the factory, uh, taking away these what you would consider mundane problems, you know, these things <laughs> called money, uh, <laughs> uh, so that he could be the artist he was. So he not only had patrons, but he also had a support system um, in you that he could he could be. I, I guess every artist has to be a child to a degree, right? Yes, that was uh, that was definitely a childish quality about him. But if you take if you had given him all these endless worries, he wouldn't have been able to create, would he? So what what is your advice out there for the world? If we want to have more artists, they have to feel comfortable. How can we yes. create safe spaces for artists to be artists? I don't think we can. I think artists <laughs> will always have it hard. This is how yeah. it goes. And they will need a bit of luck. And uh, it's who you meet. I think life is not planned. You know, I know the new generation does everything with a PowerPoint presentation, but it doesn't work. So what did you want to do? Because, you know, you 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 talk, you spend a lot of your, these days talking about him. You obviously worked with him. What were your aspirations uh, before you met him? Was was it your desire to supportive creative person or did you have a different idea? No, I, I, I studied literature, uh, wrote a thesis on the theme of revenge in Elizabethan drama, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, <laughs> And then I met my husband and I got totally engulfed by his dream. So my my idea was to make his dream happen. Of course, it was our dream. 
And then I wanted my our children to be proud of him. And, you know, that's it. Was he revengeful, like someone in an Elizabethan drama? Mm, there was a bit <laughs> of spite sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, because it's been... I mean, how would you feel if people benefited from your ideas, which is fine, but never told you, well done? Well, okay, so I don't know if you remember, but my background is in uh, in law, and I, I studied intellectual property law because I wanted to go into entertainment law. And a huge part of that is, you know, not only the protection of people's intellectual property, but the disputes they've had, right? Reading all the cases and hearing all the problems who feel um, like their property has been taken from them. And I, I remember I was volunteering one time at this organization where people would call up and there would be these songwriters and musicians who like imagined actually that someone else took their song and they were, they were, they were so threatened by it and they were so freaked out by it. So from an early age, I sort of understood some of the emotions, not only behind creativity, but what it can feel like if you think that someone has infringed upon your creativity or not giving you credit for it. How dare they exactly. not recognize you? Of course you would be angry, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's only human. And uh, I am now very amused to be called by some brands who remember that their designs were Gialgenta. And I, I always tell them it's wonderful that Alzheimer has been cured. So... <laughs> Help explain a little bit about what you do today in relation to him, because you're not just someone who was married to a, a famous watch designer. It's it's part of your, the day to day. There was an organization created a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I I don't remember the exact name, but it's something like the Gerald Gento organization. You obviously have a role in it. There's backing by brands. Yes. It seems like there's a lot of momentum behind all this. Yes, oh, there's a lot. There's much more than that. So there's a we created the Gerald Gento Heritage Association. Okay. To to tell people, and I did that quite a while ago, to tell people what my husband really was. Um, and then uh, you, 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 I have a lot of designs that were never produced. And I've been looking for, I mean, I know Gerald wants his watches to live again. And then there was a wonderful encounter with Mr. Jean Arnaud, who's, um, uh, and they decided to relaunch Gergenta. Right. So in the proper way, in a respectful way, in an innovative way as well, because, you know, Gerald always looked forward and never backwards. And together, we are going to make Gerald Genta, I, I was nearly going to say great again, oh my God. <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, uh, it's, it's coming back. They have our total support. I have the eye, I know what Gerald would have liked. They have an unbelievable factory, and can you believe it? The two people running these factories were in our factory. So, you know, it's like the circle is complete now. They have the manufacturing power, they have the knowledge, they have the will, and we are totally supporting it. And I think, I hope Jared can see from where he is what's happening, because we're going to put him where he should never have not been, you know? So let me give some context to those that aren't as up to date. And uh, I think it's very important because, you know, you do all these interviews all the time, but I think what's amazing is we actually get to discuss 
the relaunch of the Gerogenta yep. brand. Yep. Like, that's not common, right? That no. It's coming back. So- and it's right at the beginning of it. I mean, I think the first watch that will be seen, from what I understand, will be November for only watch. Yes. And then, and then of course, there will be the Gerogenta. But the enthusiasm, the knowledge of the team, I, I, it warms my heart. Readers. So we have, again, it's just such an amazing story. So the, the Geraldgenta brand prior to, to being relaunched uh, was, was owned by Bulgari, which acquired it when yes. Bulgari was still independent. Bulgari was acquired by LVMH. Yes. And now uh, through, you know, internal cooperation, um, La Fabrique du Temps, which is oui. the watchmaking arm of Louis Vuitton, uh, has announced that they will relaunch uh, the Gerald Gentle brand as a high-end, um, you know, limited production under the 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 guidance of Michelle Navas and Enrico uh, exactly. Barbasini, you know who, it all. of course, who worked at Gerald Genta with Mr. Genta when they were making the crazy sonneries and all that stuff. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a wonderful ble- reblending of familiar things. It is not a marketing plan. It is a that's what Let's, I wanted to say. It's yeah. not marketing. You walk into this factory. When I walked for the first time into this factory, it was like being in our own factory. Even the, I mean, obviously it's beautiful, more modern and everything else, but it's got the same layout that we had. It is just uncanny. It's really, really, I really feel it couldn't have been a better, better fit for that. I think yeah. we are... Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vile in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vile harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vile is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. Now, what is your role in all this? That's what I'm so excited because I, I feel like I want you to have a role. I want them to ask you what to do. I want I need a watch made, named after you. Like you need to have more uh, no, of a no, role. I don't think I need a watch made after me, but I think they are extremely I mean, they 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 ask me what I think. I am, of course, still uh doing the Jargenta Heritage Association. Uh to you, you know, I am like telling them all the stories they need, they need. I'm telling them, in a way, all the content that they could not have because it's it's, it's all in my head. And uh, and from that, I mean, the last time I went, I spoke to that guy who does enamel, and we stayed two hours together. And I was telling him all the stories we do with we did with enamel, and you know, Mr. Arnaud, who is young but exceedingly knowledgeable, is hearing all that. And I am very confident that we're in, in very, very good hands. I really do. You know, I was talking to Jean about this uh, a while ago and, you know, you're right, he's young, but he's like surrounded by like the yeah. w- the most world-class watch nerds that and can exist. And he's passionate. He's himself a watch nerd. I mean, he's yeah. really, really passionate. He knows his stuff. But he has no better 
uh, group of advisors. You know what I mean? So whatever he lacks in actual experience, he has the top people around him. And I think that's what's so fortunate is that he has this incredible group, including yourself and, and myself. He, you know, uh, we, we chat about things. It's it's really great that he's taking his role so seriously as being a vessel to help, you know, make all these dreams come true rather than make it his own personality. And too often it becomes an egotistical adventure, doesn't it? No, I mean, it makes me very happy. Even my daughter, who is very involved and, uh, you know, writes on Instagram and all of these things, uh, is very, very happy. So in a way, I mean, he's really got the gender family with him because I really think it would be a great success. So I'm going to be seeing Jean actually in a couple of weeks uh, in Paris for some Louis Vuitton stuff. What do you think I should be talking to him about at this phase? Anything I should be asking him or getting on his mind? He obviously runs a few companies. What do you want to make sure that he's doing to ensure success in the relaunch of the Gerald Genta brand? I think uh, I know what he's doing and I think he's got it right. He just needs to carry on as he's doing really Really, he's got it right. He's got the right team. He's got the right watchmakers. I met the watchmakers. He's got the right dial. It's back to where we were. We were making things in-house. And, you know, watches, it's a great thing, a design. You still need to produce it. It's very difficult to make a watch. It's not a piece of jewelry. It's got to work. It's got to have an incredible mechanism. He has got it all. And I think he knows, he, he he knows that he's at the eve of making a big brand. I think Jarjenta today is going to be what we couldn't afford to make because we didn't have what they have, which is time and money. But he has got knowledge. He's got respect. I mean, I am really, really enthusiastic. No, and, and as you should be. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly fortunate thing. And you get to, you know, you, part of your life, gets to just continue going and going and going. You you and your legacy and your family and, and my husband. daughter will be, yeah. you know, she's so proud of her dad. Uh, you know, she is quite creative herself. Uh, and uh, and it, to me, it warms my heart. I'm very, very happy. I'm going to Geneva at the end of the month. Every time I go into this factory, my heart beats. I'm going to see Michelle <laughs> and Enrico. And it, it just feels... Right. It took a long time, but it just feels right. And I think what's what's wonderful is that from a business perspective, it's not risky. I mean, every time you start a new luxury brand, there's risk associated with it. But the the confidence in the power of the Gerald Genta name uh, yeah. today is so high. Um, and again, I just I want to pull you again for your feelings, because when I started writing about watches, which was about 15 years ago, it took a bit of time for you to learn the name Gerald Genta, and then it wasn't brought up all that often. Now, you don't have to go very far, and you don't even need to find very experienced watch collectors no. who are throwing his name around. Forget if they know about really what he was about, what he did, but they know his name. Did um, you? And that, for your family, is a, is a, is a, it must be a very special thing. Obviously, there's a lot of mixed emotions on there, but talk a little bit more about the, th that experience. Well, that experience is just, you see, I've taken on to myself, because we were so, so close, I've taken on to myself a bit of the anger that Gerald felt, you know. So now, yes, there is, from the lady who wrote The Revenge in Elizabethan drama, a feel that <laughs> he's being a bit avenged, because so many companies have done so well with him, out of him. Yeah. Finally, 
Uh, and I think it's just the beginning. I think we're going to put him where he wants. I think he will be known as the Picasso of timepieces. Because remember in the 70s, what did, uh, I mean, he was the one who went back to perpetual calendars and then everybody followed. Then he was the one who went to Minitri Peter and then everybody followed. Then it was the grandson read. Then it was the retrograde. So it's height. And, 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 you know, there's so much material to look forward to that has not been produced that I really think we're going to get him to the title he wanted. That's my goal. So you said that you can imagine maybe a little bit what he's thinking. You knew him so well. You could sort of speak for him today. And I actually been thinking for a long time about this, and I'd love to know what you think is, you know, two two of the famous models he designed, the, the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak and the Patek Philippe Nautilus, have in the last several years entered pop culture in, in a way that's far beyond Gerald Genta. These are watches that are worn by, I don't know, you know, famous musicians and artists and celebrities. And they mean, you know, they mean money, they mean power, for the, they mean distinction, they mean rarity. What would he have thought about this? Would he have chuckled to himself? What would he have thought about these designs that he may have had very different intentions for becoming strong symbols and, and, and quite well known, right? Like, I'm just curious, what do you think he would have felt? I, I think he would have chuckled. I think yeah. he would have chuckled. Um, I, th- I also think sometimes Gerald didn't like huge watches. He wouldn't have liked when they became bigger. I don't think the Nautilus, maybe the Warlock, bigger and bigger and bigger because he felt that a watch is to be worn. It should be anatomical. You should be able to caress a watch. They became like huge. Yeah. And uh, I, I think he would have approved of some models and some less. And it's just interesting the ways that they've been featured in culture, you know, in, in television shows, you know, you see high yeah. power financial guys and gals wearing them and you see, you know, just all, like things that are so outside the spectrum of just, well, that's a person with good taste that likes a fine timepiece. Yeah. I think that would have slightly bothered him because Jean was all about elegance and good taste. You know, my husband would never go out without a tie. Okay. Uh, even weekends. Uh, a bit, uh, the old fashioned, but it was all about elegance. He felt a watch should be not too thick, not too obvious. So, yes, he would have been happy that these models went well, but he would have thought, okay, there are so many others that could go well too. Um, he, I, I don't know. He, he, I think he would just laugh. I'm, I'm proud. I mean, what else can you do when you see the version of your watch, supersized, covered in diamonds, yeah, exactly. worn on stage in front of <laughs> lots of fans? It's like, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, what, I think what is a good reaction he would have had. <laughs> um, but I mean, what a what a funny thing to see. You know, I I, I just always wonder because you, you imagine the artist doing their craft, doing the watch and never being able to fathom the strange places that these designs can go. Yes. And the 1980s, for example, where Audemars Piguet tried to morph and twist and change and make square and change the Royal Oak in all these strange <laughs> ways, many of which I'm sure he was like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, um, exactly. No, no, he was. I mean, one day when he became bigger and bigger and bigger, he said, when are they going to be the clock of the village shirt on the wrist? Because uh, it was getting so large that it's ridiculous. Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of clocks out there that are royal oaks, right? That's that's a thing now. <laughs> so it did it did happen eventually. It did um, happen. It, in 
the later part of the brand, uh, the Gerald Genta brand, I think he arguably started doing some of his more risque stuff. He, you know, it always looked like he was trying to run a little bit ahead of the Swiss watch. He was, and, so, and, and sometimes too fast. Yeah. But didn't matter. That's what he liked to do. And, and, you, and there are so many designs because, remember, he lived 10, 10 years after we sold the company more and yeah. he designed every day. Every single day. Did he ever talk about who he imagined wearing the watches? Because I know some people imagine themselves wearing the watch. Did he also design watches for other? I'm just trying to think about what what, what were some of the moods he was in? What was he talking about when he would design? Because I was curious, like, does he have he, a, a, a use in mind or shape in mind? Oh, you know, but yeah, tell me about he, it. He would do that. He would say... What would I do if Odomar called me today and asked me what a, uh, to make a design for them? What would I do if Patek called me for a design? Then he designed an amazing guitar watch for somebody who'd been with Led Zeppelin. So, And then he designed an Indian watch because he was interested in India. Then he designed Japanese watches influenced from uh, the um, samurai. Uh, I mean, it was not... It was endless, and uh, Gerald loved to walk in nature. He'd come back and say, oh, I've seen... He used to say that all the shapes and all the colors are in nature. You don't need to copy anything. It's all there. And so he'd come back and say, oh, I've seen this unbelievable pale green. Well, I mean, this could be an amazing... And he would do that. So it was endless. So it was going... In, into the world, finding beauty in it, and then trying to reproduce that beauty in this in, in these objects. Yes, completely, all the time. He used to say that he wished people would stop looking at the Swiss watch book and look around them to get inspiration. What, what is it about the industry that makes them so resistant to change and to, to creativity? Do they need that to maintain themselves? Because I think we joke about this all the time, but the industry, you know, I, I guess has reasons for this sort of debilitating conservatism. What, what is it? To be honest, I have no idea. Uh, Gerard would have told you that it was his Italian heritage. He was only half Swiss, so that was the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what makes them... I think that must be... They become big companies. They, they, there's, I suppose, financial, marketing budgets, whatever. I don't know. It's 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 hard it's hard to tell. One of the things that I I also know that he maybe wanted to do more. I'd never know is make more pedestrian designs or you know more accessible things. He had a tendency to go sort of very very high end. But I know that many designers have this dream of of large populations uh, being able to enjoy their aesthetic. Did he ever think about watches that could be made in higher production? Did he ever plan things like that? Um, you know, I, he had made them. He had designed a, a, a watch for Timex, which apparently sold thousands. Oh, he designed. He had done that, but I think Gerard, deep down, was a maker of prototypes. Okay. It wasn't about the money. It was about doing something new. I see. So I think what he was interested. He was like, he's done this. He sort of lost interest and was interested in the next one. So not for him to live on. You know, I really think if one of the models we had in the 1980s, we had taken and started banging on about it, and instead of putting money into the next and the next and the next watch, put it in marketing, there might be one model today we would be adding on to the other two you mentioned, but we didn't. I mean, it's hard to know in retrospect, no, right? Because it's hard to know, but we had such a such fun doing that that it's fine. 
I mean, like you said, you know, the artist wants to keep doing new things. Oftentimes, I will interview a, a watch designer, a watchmaker about a model which has just come out. And you know what they say to me? And you've heard, heard this. They're like, I'm not even thinking about that. I finished that design like three years ago. Where they're just releasing it now. My mind is on something that yeah. you won't see for another few years. I've already forgotten about all that. And that is the common story, right? That always happens. It's not surprising that he would want to move on. But you're right. From a business perspective, you know, he it's, it's a challenging thing. <laughs> Yes, it is, but but we did it. <laughs> in 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 today's world, there's a lot of watch designers who have no idea how to do even a little bit about what uh, uh, Gerald did. And you mentioned that he had to sort of go door to door. Do you think that the industry is more or less open minded to these design personalities, knowing that when they get it right? these designs that end up making a lot of money or are they still hesitant to embrace the, the, the mentality, the mindset, the personalities like Gerald's? I still think it's, it's difficult for the designers. I also think, I mean, it's not me, it's Gerald speaking. I also think the designers cannot do crazy designs. They need to do designs that are wearable. You do have, you see the strength Gerald had was in you, how you manufacture a watch, because he has himself manufactured things. So you can't do designs that are nearly not manufacturable, if that means anything to you. Right, right. Uh, everything he did, he would design, and if, for that you need to speak to Enrico and Michel, and then he would go to them. And it would be a challenge, because... The, what the way he designed it, let's say, was too low, and but they still had to make it work to put that movement in there, which he did with Grand Sonnery. But it was never crazy that they would say, no, can't be done. It right. was always doable. And for that, I think you have to know your craft very, very well. You're not just a crazy designer putting mad things on. Because for that, you can be a painter. It doesn't need to be done. <laughs> but to be a designer, you need to know the product so well. And Jean knew watches inside out. But uh, call Michel or Enrico, and they will tell you it was always a challenge, but it was always doable. There's a there's a statement out there that I don't know if he ever said, and it's something to the degree that he doesn't like watches that he sort of got into <laughs> them. I never believed this, but this was what what do you, have you heard this before? Yeah. But that's something he used to say. I don't think it was 100% true, but I think once he said it once or twice, he felt he had to say was it Was he again. being a, drama <laughs> a, a dramatist? So. Okay. I think, I think, yeah, I think that was a bit dra dramatic. Because it's an odd thing to hear, you know, like, I'm so successful that yet I, well, I hate it for... You know what he didn't like? He didn't like time. He didn't like to keep the time. I see. That's why he was tending to be a bit late. And also he hated if somebody said, my watch is you know, five minutes behind or something, because he thought, this is such a beautiful watch, what do you care? So he did, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, the funny thing about watches is like, this is, I think, what they're like cars and not like cars. They are not just beautiful in that they have to perform, and they're a machine, and they need to be manufactured and repaired and all that stuff. But unlike cars, the performance doesn't really matter in the sense that, like, if your car doesn't, like, drive well, you could die. If your watch doesn't tell the right time, it tends to not be a life-threatening problem, especially in today's world with all the other things that you can use to tell the time. So it sort of it, – it, it allows there to be more creativity, uh, but there is this sort of undercurrent where 
it, it does have to work. And I think that's very important to, to recognize is the distinction between not being a hyper freak about chronometry and also not caring if something worked or not. I think Gerald clearly cared if his watches worked. Oh, yes. He, it was just less about because there are those watchmakers, designers that. Whether or not they care about aesthetics, for them, the most precise, the most accurate, like that's their whole yeah. world. That's yeah, what they care about. It was never like that. And today, this is why you don't have any conflict between the Apple Watch, which just give you all of that, and the, and the traditional watch. Traditional watch, of course, has to keep the type, but we're not into all these functions, are we? We're diff- it's a different thing. I would have loved for him to get into smartwatch design because talk about a place that needs Gerald Genta, right? Yeah, true, true. <laughs> I mean, if the goal is to take something that you need to wear and make it something that you want to wear, true. I don't see anyone that would have been better to consult for this task. Absolutely. Uh, you, you're right. This is a great idea, yeah. What do you think he would have done to approach this problem? It's obviously a very related but different machine. Would he have embraced this this task of, of, of doing it or has he seen this as a completely different No, uh, he would thing? have embraced it. He would have loved it. Mm-hmm. He loved he loved uh, challenges. I mean, the Grand Sonnery was a challenge. It didn't exist as a wristwatch. Right. It, was, it didn't come to him. A client said, I would like one of those. And he said, fine, we'll do it. Uh, he would have loved to transform the Apple Watch. Absolutely. In the old days, I remember a client being... What you used to say, what you said before, chronometry obsessed, but so obsessed that he only wanted quartz. Uh, okay, so to gel, this was you know, oof. but <laughs> uh, but in the end, he took the movement of these quartz watches and made beautiful watches around it. So, so much of this stuff is, doesn't exist. I know you mentioned archives and things like that. I guess the natural question is. What is the development of the the museum, the Gerald Genta, like museum? This needs to exist at some point. You- it needs to exist. I am sure it's something that will happen. I am sure that a lot of things on the archive, on who he was, on the history will happen. I did what I could do with my own means, I the Gerald Genta heritage. And, you know, there are so many things that people haven't seen. We haven't scratched the surface. So yeah. this is something to look forward to and because he, he, there's, a lot, there's a lot left. Now, I, I know that you have different spheres of your life, but I think it's interesting to discuss that, you know, a big part of your life is being an ambassador. Um, you live in the UK, but you're the ambassador um, to Monaco. Uh, ex- ex- talk a little bit about what's all that about. Well, I'm I'm a Monegasque, okay? I come from Monaco. I'm a Monaco citizen. And um, when uh, we uh, when we had sold the company and we had moved to London to give our daughter an English education, uh, the prince entrusted me with that job, which um, which I am doing now with great pleasure. Gerard loved Monaco. We lived in Monaco. He loved right. the south of France. He loved the colors. He loved the sun. He loved. If you see his paintings, they're hugely colorful. And so, um, I feel like Monaco is very much about excellence and beauty. And uh, so, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm selling excellence and beauty. But that's 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 different. Just to be clear, that's that's a political position, right? It's a political position, but it's Monaco. 
Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so we have no political problems with anybody. So it is more about explaining what we are about yeah. uh, than uh, discussing really the, all the terrible events that go around the world. I'm thinking, you know, this place where this car museum is in Monaco. I'm just imagining, you know, the Gerald Genta Museum being in Monaco. Not that there's a lot of space in Monaco, but it'd be a good, it'd be a good start, right? Like I'm just imagining where it would be. It'd be very in a very pretty <laughs> place near the harbor, you know. You're obviously very creative. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 would, it would have to happen at some point. I think this is the natural place to go because especially where there's this body of work, I think what we've learned is that for these legacies to be real, they have to be displayed. Yes, I agree. People must learn about them, must see it, must touch them. And Gerald, we, we had our offices in Monaco overlooking the sea and every morning he'd come in and, you know, have his little espresso coffee on the terrace and look at the sea and the sun and say, ah, oh, this is wonderful, you know? So, yeah, the connection is there. Has Gerald ever put together, I'll call it educational information? I know that there is a great desire to understand best practices behind watch design and things like that. And I know part of a legacy is education. Have you ever, you know, is there anything related to him putting together lessons or has there been talks about that for, you know, uh, young, younger designers? Unfortunately not. He had thought about it, but it never happened really. And I'm hmm. wondering whether he would have enjoyed it or I don't know. Teaching, teaching is hard. I mean, that's not easy, Teaching right? is hard. Teaching is hard. It's probably quite frustrating if you if you know how it should be and if you know art. It must, I mean, did any painters ever teach to anybody else? I'm not sure. I, yeah, but I don't know that as many are as self-aware as maybe a designer like Gerald was or a Picasso, right? Because there's, especially with a Picasso, there's an understanding of what they're doing. There's a marketing behind it. Like he understood to a degree. And I think that, you know, Gerald and his generation already understood uh, the sort of trajectories and lifespans. Um, and, and you're right, it was probably rare, but I think, you know, this, especially today, it's such an important thing where people are thinking about their legacy, especially on with the world yes. of social media. People are remembered and you want to be remembered for the right way. And especially if you there's do. a monetary interest behind your name, that's, that's, that's such a big deal. And, you know, I, I don't know that people in history always thought about like what people are going to think about them after they die, but now it's a big deal. Yes, you're right. I don't think he really did. I don't really, no. It's, uh, it's yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> to, the, the wonderful things that we need to think about today, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so th the next couple of years sound like they're going to be very exciting for you. Obviously, yes. there's going to be the product launch of it. And, and I believe, is, is only watch... Uh, going to be in Monaco this year? No, it's going to be in Geneva. Oh, it's it used to be in Monaco, right? Am I making it that up? It used to be in Monaco because the gentleman who runs it is a wonderful gentleman and he originates from Monaco. But I believe that in the last few years they've had it in Geneva. Okay, okay. So is that part going to be part of the, the official launch of the Gerald Genta brand? It will be a watch made, obviously, only watch. Uh, uh, but by then, I would imagine um, that they will be announcing the new products. But for that, you really need to speak to Jean more. more. Okay, okay. Again, I'm just, I'm excited by it. And Me I think too. that, yeah, you get, you get so many more events to go to. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know it's what you love to do. You're so good at it. You're so good at it, too. Uh, but... 
you, I'm just saying you have years and years and years of having to tell this, you know, maybe sometimes the same story about Gerald and, and all that. It's, uh, it's going to be an exciting time. I, how are you preparing your daughter? You mentioned oh, sort very of taking much. her My daughter is very, first of all, my daughter is excellent, obviously, at social media. Secondly, she's creative, clever. And so proud of her dad and hardworking. Even if I say all these good things about my daughter, I hope she listens to the podcast. I 100% believe it. And I really, I'm very, very happy that she's getting involved in this adventure. I really, I mean, it means a lot for me and it would have meant a lot for Gerald. The last thing I want to ask you, and again, I, this is such a great conversation, but in your opinion, of the of the watches that exist today, which were the ones that, that Gerald maybe wants more, more, more recognition for. Like, there's plenty of recognition for the Royal Oak. I'm sure doesn't care about that anymore. But there are those designs out there that he do, he did that he may have wanted people to notice a little bit more. He felt, um, you know, required a little bit more people's attention. Wh- which are those models? To be honest, I don't know. I think okay. he wants his own. I think he wants his own. What I can tell you is that the only watch he said he regretted not having design. He wished he had design with the Oyster Rolex. <laughs> and he said, I said, well, why? And he said, because the proportions are perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Proportions oh. are a big deal. Yeah. Proportions I, are a big deal. I just want people to go out there and survey the body of work. I mean, I've spent, you know, more than 15 years writing about watches, more than 20 years being into watches. Um, it's it's been interesting how often Gerald Gento's work popped up, especially when I first started getting into watches, and there was this, uh, you know, the 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 Gefica collection, which obviously oh, yeah. went that many. That was a gener- fantastic watch. Yeah, and that did yeah. very 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 well. It was a brilliant watch. This was, I I think, the first modern use of bronze. Right, mm-hmm. very yeah, ahead yeah. of its time. <laughs> Talk of going back, no. or going forward, whatever way you want to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many bronze ages we've had, but definitely not a recent one. And again, not discussed at the time. No one understood bronze. He had this idea about the patina, and he was speaking over people's heads. And then, like. I don't know how long it took. I think it was at least 20 years. Yes. <laughs> but ma- then other people started talking about it. And I'm just like, and no one mentioned Gerald Genta. I kept reminding people, like, remember the Gefica? It had been so long, people had forgotten. But now people are beginning to remember. I even get brands calling me saying, oh, this watch was designed by your husband. I said, no, it wasn't. And now, th- now we're going the other way. Uh, everybody's got to watch designed by my husband. Oh, and, so uh, they're trying to bank on the name. Yeah, they're like, oh, and, are, we and, have and, a Gerald Genta too. Yeah, and unless I know that it is, uh, the Gerald Genta Association will not give heritage, will not give the okay, because it's not true. Okay, okay. So I guess that's, that's we're going to, so our next conversation we're going to do after the <laughs> the first new products have come out. And we'll we'll chat a little bit more about what your daughter's doing and sort of the, the yeah. next steps on this. Next time you can speak to her. Today, unfortunately, she's working hard and she's just had a baby. So okay, well, that's a good reason not to be that's available a good for reason, a show, right? <laughs> um, where 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 can people go on the internet to learn more? You talked about the foundation. What are any websites or social media accounts that you want to mention right now that people should go it is to? The Argenta Heritage Foundation. That is, uh, you know, and the Instagram accounts, everything else. And I know that Argenta, uh, the company, is preparing a new website, which will come out very very soon. And there will be lots of conversations, more conversations. I hope we have another one. 
I would like that very much. Everyone, this has been the Superlative Podcast with Evelyn Genta. Evelyn, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>